This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, July 11th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, every year, colleges raise tuition prices yet again. That's helped create the student debt crisis, and it's causing more young people to skip college altogether. But what's the government's role here? Is it making things worse? And if so, what's the solution? I recently sat down to talk about that with Richard Vetter, author of a new book on restoring the promise of higher ed. We also delved into free speech issues and accountability for public colleges. Today, we'll play that interview. Plus, a city council in Minnesota got rid of the Pledge of Allegiance, and they got more than they bargained for. We'll discuss. By the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes to help us grow. Now, on to our top news. In a press conference Wednesday, Labor Secretary Alex Acosta defended how he handled the Jeffrey Epstein case and the deal Epstein got made when Acosta was a U.S. attorney in Florida. By reiterating that I'm pleased that the New York prosecution is going forward. They brought these charges based on new evidence against Jeffrey Epstein, who is now a registered sex offender. And this is a very, very good thing. His acts are despicable, and the New York prosecution offers an important opportunity to more fully bring Epstein to justice. In 2008, a major newspaper described the Epstein prosecution like this. A Florida grand jury, that is, a grand jury convened by the district attorney of Palm Beach County, had charged Epstein with a lesser offense. At that time, the Epstein legal team was elated. He would have avoided prison altogether. But then the United States Attorney's Office in Miami became involved. Epstein got an ultimatum. Plead guilty to a charge that would require jail time and registration or face federal charges. And that was the week more than 10 years ago that Epstein went to jail. Times have changed, and coverage of this case has certainly changed since that article. Facts are important, and facts are being overlooked. This matter started as a state matter. It was prosecuted initially by the state of Florida and not by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Epstein, accused of sex with minors, is now facing sex trafficking charges in New York. Meanwhile, Democrats aren't planning to let this issue go. Representatives Elijah Cummings, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and Representative Jamie Raskin, chairman of the Civil Liberties and Civil Rights Subcommittee, have sent a letter to Acosta requesting he appear for a hearing on July 23rd. Cummings and Raskin write, The hearing will examine your actions as United States Attorney for the Southern District of Florida in authorizing a non-prosecution agreement for Jeffrey Epstein, as well as the finding by a federal court that you violated the Crime Victims' Rights Act by keeping this non-prosecution agreement secret from the victims of Mr. Epstein's crimes. Well, President Trump is declaring victory after a federal appeals court threw out a lawsuit that accused him of violating the Constitution by collecting earnings from his businesses in D.C. The case was brought by the attorneys general of Maryland and the District of Columbia. They argued that his continued ownership of the Trump International Hotel and related businesses 
meant that he was receiving payments from foreign governments, the U.S. government, or individual states, thereby violating the Constitution's emoluments clause, which prevents the president from receiving gifts from officials without Congress's consent. After the decision was announced, the president tweeted, quote, Word just out that I won a big part of the deep state and Democrat-induced witch hunt. Unanimous decision in my favor from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit on the ridiculous emoluments case. I don't make money but lose a fortune for the honor of serving and doing a great job as your president, including accepting zero salary. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has addressed NBC News' big report that his great-great-grandfathers owned slaves. You know, I find myself once again in the same position as President Obama. We both oppose reparations, and we both are the descendants of slaveholders. Nor is Obama the only liberal with slave-owning ancestors. The Washington Free Beacon reports that Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat of California, has an ancestor, Hamilton Brown, who owned slaves. The Free Beacon found the ancestor in an article by Harris's dad and determined that that ancestor owned slaves by looking through Jamaican archived records. Harris has not commented on the issue. Well, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez isn't just against ICE and Border Patrol. In a recent interview on New Yorker Radio, asked if she would get rid of the Department of Homeland Security, she said, quote, I think so. I think we need to undo a lot of the egregious a lot of the egregious mistakes that the Bush administration did, end quote. She also added, I feel like we are at a very, it's a very qualified and supported position, at least in terms of evidence and in terms of being able to make the argument that we never should have created DHS in the early 2000s, end quote. Well, the Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11 to consolidate several federal agencies that had failed to work efficiently together in the lead up to 9-11. Kim Derrick, the U.K. ambassador to the U.S., whose blunt and not flattering assessments of the Trump administration were leaked to British media, is stepping down, saying, quote, the current situation is making it impossible for me to carry out my role as I would like, end quote. After the leak, President Trump tweeted that, I do not know the ambassador, but he is not liked or well thought of within the U.S. We will no longer deal with him. Well, British members of parliament have taken steps that could potentially impose same-sex marriage and abortion on Northern Ireland, a constituent country of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland currently defines marriage as the union between a man and a woman, and abortion there is illegal. Those two issues have been left to local governance in Northern Ireland, but the government there collapsed in early 2017, creating a power vacuum that's remained unfilled for over two years. Members of British Parliament said that as long as the deadlock there persists, they have an obligation to step in. British lawmakers voted overwhelmingly to push both same-sex marriage and abortion on Northern Ireland come October if a local government there isn't assembled. California is now offering Medicaid to illegal immigrants between the ages of 19 to 25 if they make a low enough salary or no money to qualify. According to CNN, California is the first state to offer older young adults who are illegal immigrants this kind of health care benefit. And how will the Golden State pay for this? Well, California brought the individual mandate back, and now California adults must have health insurance or pay a fee. That fee will go to funding health insurance for young adult illegal immigrants. 
While the left has fought tooth and nail to keep the citizenship question off the 2020 census, but it turns out the U.S. public wants it. In fact, a new poll from the Harvard University Center for American Political Studies and Harris found that 55% of Hispanic voters approve of asking residents on the census whether they are citizens. 67% of all registered voters approve of that question, and that includes 88% of Republicans and 52% of Democrats. The Supreme Court recently ruled that the Trump administration could not add that question based on its proposed legal rationale of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Next up, we'll feature Daniel's interview with Richard Vedder about college costs and free speech on college campuses. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Well, I'm joined now by Richard Vetter. He is senior fellow at the Independent Institute and author of the book, Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Mr. Vetter, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Daniel. So, you know, lots of uh, younger folks, I guess in my generation and younger, um, are saddled with student debt. I want to ask you about that. Um, we often think of student uh, federal aid as a good thing, something that helps us afford college. Um, but you write in your book that uh, government aid actually contributes to the problem. Uh, can you explain that for us? Sure. Uh, when they started the student loan programs uh, uh, around 1970, and they grew large, uh, grew very large in the late 70s, uh, an extension of the student loan uh, act that provided this money. When this happened, colleges said, aha, uh, kids are going to be able to afford college more than before, uh, so we can be more aggressive in raising our fees. So colleges, starting in the late 70s, started to raise their fees. They used to go up a little bit more than the inflation rate, maybe 1% a year more than the inflation rate. Now they started going up far faster, 3% or more uh, faster than the inflation rate. And if you compound that over 40 years, which is the amount of time that has passed since then, we're now paying, uh, kids are now paying about double the tuition fees they would have paid if that had not happened. So the tuition fees in America have been pushed up by the student loan programs, I think. Bill Bennett, who was uh, Secretary of Education, uh, wrote an uh, op-ed in the New York Times of all places in 1987 where he made that point, and a lot of people poo-hooed it and said, ah, that's not true. But the research from the New York Fed and the National Bureau of Economic Research has uh, validated what uh, Bill Bennett said. Wow, so would you say government, government uh, intervention really is the key driver, the main driver of tuition these days? I mean, we see it tuition every year going up. It has been. Now, in fairness, that in light of recent developments, tuition fees are starting to rise less rapidly, and, and schools are desperate because enrollments have been falling. Fees went up so much that 
uh, it be, college became prohibitively expensive for some people, particularly low-income people who saw these massive sticker prices and they just didn't apply in some cases to college. So the irony of it is, is we put in student loans to help mostly low-income people, supposedly. Right. And the reality is uh, the low-income people have been scared away from college more than the um, affluent or middle-income or upper-income people. So uh, I call this the law of unintended consequences. Things yeah. turn out to be just the opposite of what the government in, intended. Do you think there's any hope of reversing that with, with federal policy? Well, uh, it's going to be tough because our vested interests are always going to fight change. If we did things right, we would start reversing that. And there, we could whittle away at it. We could limit student loans, the number of years you could borrow. We could limit it to only undergraduate education and not expensive graduate education. We could cut out something called PLUS loans, which are loans often made to parents of students. Mm -hmm. And we could also make the loans more on a commercial basis. That is, you don't get the money unless there's some reasonable prospect that you're going to graduate. Uh, you got to have a minimal academic standards. Well, there are a lot of things we could do to improve the system, but we uh, need to start doing those things. I want to ask you also about the issue of free speech on campus, which is increasingly an issue that even the president has addressed. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the 60s, the, the sort of young new left on campus were championing free speech. Um, mm. And we could speculate as to why. I mean, it certainly helped their, their uh, voice. Um, but now that they have a monopoly on the university, it seems that they're more in favor of shutting it down. Um, just historically, I, I mean, I'm curious about when this started. I mean, when, when did free speech really start getting shut down on campus? Is this a recent phenomenon? Um, well, you know, you could argue that free speech has been uh, closed down on campuses since the 15th, 16th century. Uh, uh, you know, Galileo wasn't allowed to say what he wanted to say right. and uh, faced uh, consequences. And, but when the Enlightenment came in the 18th century, the idea is that free speech is liberating. It, it, it improves the mind, it improves the economy, and so forth. And we had the, the classical liberal revolution that is what made us what we are today as a nation and in the, as a planet, really, a, a wealthy, prosperous place. All that started way back then, and then we were getting rid of barriers to free speech. The idea is enhancing free speech. In the last... Uh, we had in the 1950s some restriction on free speech but in what was called the McCarthy era uh, where uh, Senator McCarthy who was most people would say was a conservative Republican but I don't look at him quite that way uh, he was fiercely anti-communist and we had loyalty oaths that some professors had to sign in order to have jobs as teaching and so on so we've had episodes in American history where government has interfered with the process of education to impose certain restrictions. That's coming back again. It's not so much the government is, but in some sense the government is enforcing it, I think, because diversity of ideas is not part of the agenda of the, 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 uh, the welfare state. And indeed, 
the, the agenda of the welfare state seems almost to be the opposite. We all have to think alike because there is a progressive way of thinking. And that problem has grown, I think, gradually since the 80s and the 90s, but it has uh, certainly uh, reached a crescendo level in the last decade or so. But again, if the federal government weren't in the higher ed business at all, which essentially they weren't before 1960 or 65, I don't think we would be having these problems. Hmm. Uh, 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 or at least we wouldn't have them at the level of severity that we do. Because colleges would be competing for students without subsidies from the government. Yeah. There are consequences when you turn people off. And a lot of these protests have turned people off. Look at Evergreen State in uh, the state of Washington where uh, they went wild with protests and at one time were even telling uh, certain students, white students, that they could go to campus, you know, yeah. because, and what's happened there, dramatic decline in enrollments and yeah. so forth. And uh, I think the American people, by and large, have a different set of values with respect to these things than, the, than is prevail- prevailing in the collegiate communities. <laughs> Schools like Yale get away with murder, <laughs> uh, in this regard, uh, because for one thing, they have huge endowments, so that no matter what they do, they're sort of insulated from the market. And uh, we need to let market forces work more. And the, the, the biggest single thing that would help that is for the government to get out of the higher education business. Yeah, we saw uh, a few years ago the uh, in Missouri uh, State the Mizzou controversy. You know, with the the, the student uh, the professor getting fired because she was involved in the physical confrontation. Um, I mean, they saw a drop off of students. Dramatic at Missouri, uh, several thousand. They've had to uh, let go, uh, go uh, a number of faculty members and uh, whatnot. And the irony of it is, uh, a secondary effect is appropriations on the part of the state government for the university have fallen significantly because Mm -hmm. the legislators were fed up with this, rightfully so, I might add, in this case. Uh, And uh, so protesting is costly to universities, but they feel they have to allow it because they're, they're being intimidated by a small group of students, sometimes not so small, sometimes medium sized group of students on some of these campuses. And uh, it's time that uh, uh, we sort of stand up to this. And uh, one way to do it is to uh, threaten the removal of federal funds. Uh, President Trump intimated as much in his recent executive order. Yeah, that's, uh, he, he did. Um, he, um, sorry, we'll have to edit, have to edit this. Um, last question I just want to ask you. Um, We've had some uh, members of Congress talking about how college have kind of been turned off by the way that universities have gone and are um, saying that, you know, college isn't for everyone. It's not as good as it as it's, you know, cooked up to be. Uh, We need to consider trade schools. Look at those. Um, And I think a lot of conservatives are interested in that because it it would break up the monopoly that. among other things, is indoctrinating a new generation of people. Um, so with, with that, with the college costs and everything that goes into a four-year university, 
you think it's still worth it for young people to attend the four-year college? There are some people that benefit from a four-year college and will continue. There are things that colleges do uh, that some people will benefit from. And part of it is vocational. You know, they'll, they'll uh, to develop credentials that make them look good to law schools and look good to employers and so forth. And, and so there are some students, some people for whom this is true. But there's a large group of students for whom this is not true or who drop out or fail. 40% of the kids drop out. Uh, another 40% graduate and they end up doing jobs like um, being a barista mm -hmm. or working in a Walmart or a Home Depot or something like that. And uh, so the risk of going is, is, is rising. The risk of going to college. So is it less risky to be trained to be a welder or a plumber? Yes, I mean, even there you can fail. But if you fail, the consequences are not as great. You don't have four years mm -hmm. of schooling. You have less money involved. You make a lot and, more money welding. And, and you make more money welding. So uh, I am generally wish government generally got out of the education business. But if you're going to be in the education business, I think it would be smart to turn some of our resources away from the traditional universities towards these kind of programs. Uh, uh, a vocational education, which, by the way, 50, 75 years ago, we we did uh, have a, a more vibrant vocational education program in America, and we got away from that because we told everyone, college is for all. You have to go to college. That was the very bad advice, and uh, we're reaping the consequences of it now. Well, the book is called Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Richard Vetter, really appreciate your time. Thanks. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Fox and Friends, that's the audio from quite the city council meeting. Minnesota Town St. Louis Park's city council unanimously voted in June to stop saying the Pledge of Allegiance during meetings, according to Fox News, although they left open saying the pledge at other times. Council member Tim Brosson said at the time, We concluded that in order to create a more welcoming environment to a diverse community, we're going to forego saying the Pledge of Allegiance before every meeting. Another council member, Ann Mavity, told the Minnesota NBC affiliate, Not everyone who does business with the city or has a conversation is a citizen. They certainly don't need to come into city council chambers and pledge their allegiance to our country in order to tell us what their input is about a sidewalk in front of their home. End quote. But, as you heard, not everyone in St. Louis Park is happy. Reportedly, around 100 folks showed up earlier this week during a city council meeting, unhappy over the decision to abandon the pledge. So, Daniel, what do you think? So, I, I can, I'm basically against this, but I can, I can see where they're coming from. Like, if you're dealing with local people who are not Americans and who don't intend to, you know, become Americans, maybe they're living here for a few years, 
like yeah they they shouldn't have to say the pledge of allegiance but it's just not a big deal like why can't you still have the pledge of allegiance and maybe they just not say it uh i don't really get that but i i think it does speak to the larger issue um on the left uh, that is uh, they don't really want assimilation um they you know want to create like pathways to citizenship but they don't really define what citizenship is and why it matters and what it is to be an american um you know in that clip that we just quoted um they talked about uh, there being a diverse community well america is diverse like america itself is an extremely diverse country so i i guess i don't understand why pledging allegiance to america is a problem if america itself is extremely diverse yeah and actually i got to disagree with you on this one i think that um I don't really understand where they're coming from the sense of I'm not aware that it was ever mandatory to recite the pledge yourself. And I mean, I think you I would assume you can't be a city council member unless you're a citizen. Um, But I also think, you know, if I was ever to live abroad for a few years, I would have no problem with, you know, Spain or England or whatever, you know, reciting their anthems or their whatever their equivalents. Yeah, it's their country. And I think that, to me, this more smacks of sort of that thing on the left you hear about, oh, I'm a citizen of the world. And it's like, if you're a citizen of the world, in some ways, you're a citizen of nothing. Like, you have to have allegiances matter. And as I recall, um, I'm trying to remember a book I was reading about Denmark recently, but, you know, they were saying, like, there's a lot of civic pride there. I think it's a healthy thing in a nation. That doesn't mean that you, um, you know, whitewash the past or anything. But to me, this just feels like, Yes, it's only one city, and I don't know their percent of immigrants or whatever, but it just feels like another really unnecessarily hostile attitude toward patriotism. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised they voted unanimously, Um, and I think city councils have got to understand that this is going to really tick off locals more than it is going to appease any minority group. Like, you're just whacking a hornet's nest when you do this. Um, But So, I mean, yeah, I'm against—I don't think we disagree— I don't think. Wait, how did you think we disagree? Well, you said you understood. You were. No. You sounded a little more sympathetic no. well, than yeah, I think I am. Because, like, you know, if if they were requiring that everyone say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, and and I can see, like, I can see it being awkward. Like, oh, there's a like group of there's a family from somewhere else. Like, are you gonna make them say the pledge or make everyone say but the I pledge? Mean, but but again, like, it's just not a big deal. Why can't there be the pledge and not everyone has to say it? Right, and I think. Um, I think sometimes we worry too much about awkwardness and I would almost relate it to, you know, um, like the time I went to your Baptist church, like you were like, Hey, they might say some things that offend you. And I was like, cool. I give you the trigger. warning. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, and they ex- didn't say anything that offended you. No. You'll have um, to come back another Sunday. They might. Um, but I mean, I think there's something like I wouldn't have expected or wanted your church to compromise to make me feel comfortable. Like right. I was the one who chose to enter that space. Um, sorry, now I've made it really personal for you. But I mean, I no, think no. there is like an like you lose something. You really lose something when you stop doing things like you stop saying the pledge yeah. and you stop. And it's I think especially tough because you think about what Alexis de Tocqueville, um, you know, said about America and how the localities, the associations, all of that was so important. Like a city council, yeah. it's very small, but it also sh- like that is where most people experience government. Right. That is where they deal with the government. That is what they have to do. I mean, most conservatives would like to see that um, area of government become more, not less powerful. And I think it's 
I think it's very revealing. So how would you respond to those who would say, well, you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to be a full-fledged member of this community, and you're still partaking in the community in a real way, like you are almost a citizen of the community, but not of the country. I would say you can't be a full-fledged member of the community without being a citizen, insofar as, like, of course, most importantly, you can't vote. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge part of being, and I would not ever propose extending voting to non-citizens. I think that, you know, I have a sister who lives in Spain, and I don't know what she's going to do long-term, but, like, there is. Sometimes it's kind of weird for her, but yeah. that's a choice she made. I don't think, frankly, one of the reasons I would never want to be an expat long-term is I don't like that sort of in-between. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess you have lived in other countries, so you might be able to speak to this more than I have. But um, yeah, I don't think you're a full member of the community. And I think that when you come to the United States, just as if I came to another country, you should expect some degree of awkwardness if you don't become a citizen. I don't think that calls for cruelty yeah. or like demanding an individual do the Pledge of Allegiance before you fix their sidewalk, but there's no suggestion anything like that was occurring. Yeah, and I mean, I generally agree. I I just don't think being a citizen of the country is quite the same as being a member of the local community. But, I mean, when you think about what America is, I mean, this is not like signing up for the Chinese, you know, so, you know you're going to be a Chinese citizen and member of the Communist Party. Like, when you think of what America is, it's this, you know, multicolored quilt you know, this melting pot of a country that's inspirational and that itself should never be, It's that, that itself is never exclusive. Right. And I think also, you know, I mean, obviously this is a nation of immigrants. You know, I've seen my own ancestors' records at Ellis Island. Um, oh, wow. I'm grateful that this country is open to immigrants. Um, but I think that, you know, with that came a genuine love for America. And I think if you have such distaste for America that hearing the pledge bothers you, like, frankly, you shouldn't be here. Well, and I think most immigrants here, even the illegal immigrants who want to become legal and citizens, like they are they are perfectly happy to praise America for what it is and to become American. Like, I think it's just the political elites that that have the streak of anti-Americanism. I could see that being true. I mean, like that, uh, you know, news story you did today where over half of Hispanics don't mind citizenship being asked on the census. Yeah. You know, I mean, years ago. This <laughs> is not a big deal. Right. I mean, years and years ago, there was a poll asking Native Americans if they thought the Washington Redskins name was offensive and the vast majority did not. I don't know if that's changed in the probably two decades since that poll was taken. But yeah, sometimes I definitely think the left assumes something without maybe consulting the actual community. And yeah. I agree that you may well be right. And immigrants might be largely in favor of the Pledge of Allegiance. I certainly hope that they are excited about their new country. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.